Hello and welcome to Plan B, a podcast about all the latest news and updates related to citizenship by investment by CS Global Partners, a global legal government advisory and marketing firm. My name is Aisha Mohammed and I'm your host. In our last episode, we spoke with Micah Emmett, the CEO of CS Global Partners and the editor-in-chief of Truly Belong magazine. Micah specifically discussed the Truly Belong magazine as it releases its eighth issue titled Migration and Movement. You can catch up on that episode and others by subscribing to Plan B on Spotify or iTunes. You can also find an episode breakdown on our website at www.csglobalpartners.com under the resources section or by following CS Global Partners on YouTube. Make sure to stay tuned until the end of this episode as we share four most common ways to gain a second citizenship. On today's show, we'll be talking to Christian Henrik Neshim, the founder and editor of Investment Migration Insider, a leading source of intelligence for the citizenship and residency by investment industry. As some of you may already know, imydaily.com features breaking news, commentary on current events, interviews with key figures, an extensive overview of relevant conferences, dedicated exclusively to the CBI, RBI industry. But first, some CBI highlights and updates from this week. In an unprecedented move, the United Arab Emirates announced that it would be granting citizenship to foreign investors, professionals and special talents for the first time in the nation's history. The new amendment will also enable citizens naturalised under the revised law to hold dual citizenship, indicating a significant shift in the nation's future outlook. However, it appears that there will be no formal application process and prospective clients must first be selected by Emirati royals or officials. Residents of Hong Kong who are British national overseas passport holders can now apply for a new visa offering them an opportunity to become British citizens. This is a significant change for BNO passport holders who historically could receive consular protection from UK diplomatic posts, but could only remain in the United Kingdom for up to six months at a time visa-free. The move comes in response to China imposing its national security legislation on Hong Kong, which the United Kingdom believes to be in breach of the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration. Ukrainian parliamentarians propose to amend the nation's legislation to allow citizens to have dual citizenship. If passed, the bill will provide Ukrainian citizens the right to obtain citizenship of a foreign state without losing the citizenship of Ukraine. The amendments will also allow foreigners to obtain Ukrainian citizenship without renouncing their country of origin citizenship. The draft law also calls for the limitation of rights for passport holders of so-called aggressor nations, such as Russia. If a Ukrainian citizen has second citizenship from a nationality recognised as an aggressor to Ukraine, they will be restricted from exercising electoral rights, running for parliament or applying for government jobs. And those are this week's CBI updates. We're very fortunate to have Christian Henrik Neshim, the founder and editor of Investment Migration Insider, join us on today's episode. He founded the publication in 2017 and its readership and contributors include professionals from immigration companies, property developers, law firms, private wealth advisories and family offices, as well as policymakers and even some heads of state. We've invited him to talk to us about emerging trends in the investment immigration industry. Welcome to Plan B, Christian. An honour to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I was supposed to have my wisdom tooth taken out this week, but uh, fortunately I was able to uh, 
put that off for another week or two. So uh, all things considered, I'm, I'm doing all right. Great. So let's get started. What led you to set up IMI Daily and how do you ensure you are always up to date with and ready to report on industry changes? Uh, well, I think the most important thing is, you know, I was working for um, an investment migration company at the time. I was doing B2B sales agreements in China and uh, I wasn't that good at it, to tell you the truth. And, but I've always been um, very fond of writing because the market was relatively young and still quite small. There wasn't a, a journal for the market. Uh, most most uh, industries have their own journals you know there, there's probably a plumbers weekly and a, uh you know golf instructors digest but but there wasn't anything like that for investment migration uh, and so i figured i would give that a shot uh and we didn't really make any money in the first six months or so and i think we broke broke even at about the one year mark of course we don't have a lot of high fixed expenses being a fully virtual business um, and so, yeah, I eventually quit my day job and, uh, and uh, haven't looked back. So that was in May 2017. Um, and as to how do I stay up to date um, on what's moving in the market? So there's chiefly two things, right? First is I, I have a lot of Google alerts for different keywords, you know, like golden visa, citizenship by investment. So whenever that's mentioned somewhere on the web, I get a little notification and in the beginning it was just me paying attention and keeping tabs on all these developments but then over time as our audience grew I, I now i have you know a thousand people sending me tips all the time uh from around the world so you know uh, a greek lawyer might send me some news on the greek golden visa and then a developer in the caribbean might send me you know the new some new policy from the st kitts ciu um, so today it's a mix of just uh, following uh, the uh, Google alerts and getting tips from my readers. Despite the continued increase in demand for second citizenship, not all CBI programs stand the test of time. As we've seen, Moldova was short-lived and 2020 saw the end of the Cyprus program and the Malta IIP. Do you think it is likely that new countries will launch CBI programs in 2021? And if so, which ones? Okay, so in the investment migration market, I guess there's companies and I, I talk to people in these companies and they kind of tell me, you know, a little bit about what they're doing, who they're talking to. Very often they are reluctant to go into specifics, but I, you know, I hear this and that, you know, someone from this company went to Solomon Islands, someone from that company went to St. Vincent and the Grenadines, right? And then you kind of get a feel for what's, on the horizon, but of course, uh, wanting to open a, a citizenship by investment program is very different from actually planning to open a citizenship, citizenship by investment program, which in turn is very different from actually opening and executing uh, a citizenship by investment program. I think the lead time on, you know, from original concept to actual launch is longer than a lot of people think it is. Uh, a lot of the programs that do open up have been sort of in the pipeline for several years before they finally come to fruition. And I think that's uh, that's been happening in 2020 as well. You know, I know a lot of these companies were very 
buoyant, very, very optimistic as to new programs opening. Um, but of course, it's been difficult to travel in 2020 and, you know, to, to build trust between a government advisory firm and a government takes some time and it, it usually takes a number of face-to-face -face meetings. And so I think there are lots and lots of programs or lots and lots of governments out there that are strapped for cash and uh, that don't really have the option of raising taxes or printing more of their own currency or borrowing money at reasonable rates. And I think those countries uh, are definitely interested, especially if they're small countries that have Schengen access in their, uh, for their passport. Uh, and their economies are small enough for a CBI program to make a difference to their GDP. Then uh, there are lots, lots and lots, dozens of countries out there that are interested in it. And I could mention, I mean, I think most likely for uh, 2021, I think we'll see at least one, maybe two of those processes reach the end stage where the country starts publicly announcing that they will be opening a, a CIP. Whether it happens actually in 2021 or in 2022, I'm not sure, but I would say it's most likely to happen in the Pacific, um, in, you know, I think Vanuatu has demonstrated to a lot of the countries around it um, how how important and how crucial it can be to have that source of income, especially in uh, pandemic year 2020. Because you see now that you know even before in 2019, um, more than half of government revenue in Vanuatu came from citizenship by investment, and of course uh, in 2020, with their borders sealed, no tourists coming in. Um, it's definitely been, <laughs> it's, it's made the whole difference for Vanuatu. And I, I think probably people in the governments of Solomon Islands, Kiribati, uh, maybe Marshall Islands, they're looking at, you know, how, how important it's been for Vanuatu. And uh, some of them have indicated uh, openly that they're interested in a, in a CIP. So I think the Pacific is probably the most likely uh, location for, if we're gonna see an opening of a CBI program this year, I my money's on the Pacific, although I don't know for sure. And then after that, uh, maybe in the Balkans. Yeah, maybe in Albania, maybe most likely Albania. I know Serbia has been talking about it and I know Slovenia has been talking about it, but I don't consider that realistic. Serbia is too big of an economy um but i think uh yeah albania would be the most likely candidate i think in in that region but before that i think we'll see something in the pacific very interesting and while we are used to discussions on the value of ordinary passports and eligibility for diplomatic passports 2020 has also seen a discussion on a new type of passport the health passport do you think health passports will be part of the future and how is it likely to affect economic citizenship patterns? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be a thing, uh, health passports. Uh, I'm not happy about that. I just I don't see how we'll return to the normal travel freedom that we had before the pandemic without some sort of, uh, you know, might be health certificate or a vaccine certificate being involved in that process. So I think a lot of the countries that today have, say, uh, Schengen access in their passports, 
a lot of those will still nominally have Schengen access, but I think in practice, probably the European Union will make the working of that visa or that visa waiver contingent on uh, having a having a vaccine, for example. You know, I, th I think it might be a something akin to the ETA that you have in the United States where you have a you need a prior authorization. So even though, for example, I'm I have a Norwegian passport and I can travel to the United States, but I still need to 72 hours in advance fill out a form online and submit some documentation. It's sort of a DIY uh, mini visa application. Um, and I think uh, well in 2021 the ETIAS system was supposed to be implemented in the European Union. I don't know if um, that uh, timeline has been pushed back because of COVID. It, it may very well have, but I think that we'll see something similar to the ETA that they have in the United States um, in, in Europe. And I think um, vaccination certificates will probably be tied to that in some way. I don't know exactly, practically speaking, how that would be implemented, but I just don't see us returning to you know, um, petitions being able to travel to Europe just on their visa-free uh, passport alone. I think that they might have to uh, get a certificate in St. Kitts first saying they got the vaccine or that they have antibodies or something of that nature. I don't know precisely what it'll look like, but I'm sure, I'm quite sure that we won't go back to the things, the way things were in, in 2019 anytime soon. I think uh, health certificates, vaccine certificates, health passports, whatever you want to call it, I think that's going to be a part of the future, yeah. Yes, this definitely seems to be our new normal. EU entities have been cracking down on European CBI and Golden Visa programmes. What impact will this have on the rest of the industry and how should other countries set themselves apart and are some already achieving this? Yeah, <laughs> I think that one of the impacts it'll have on, on the market is that CBI programs, golden visa programs are probably going to stop referring to themselves as programs because they know that this, this gets them on the European Commission's radar in, in some ways. And we've seen this in Malta, which, you know, Malta discontinued its MIIP, which was a citizenship by investment program. Um, but they replaced it with what I call the main policy, the Maltese Exceptional Investor Naturalization Policy, um, which they're studiously avoiding referring to as a program, even though it clearly is one. So it, it's a formulaic standardized route to citizenship through investment in Malta, but they insist on not calling it a program. And I think that's because Whenever you talk of a program, citizenship by investment program, golden visa program, it sets off these alarm bells in in Brussels, um, and so I think that will be that will be one one change. And I think uh, I don't know. It might be, you know, we talked about Albania maybe introducing a citizenship by investment program. I think that the signal that the European Commission is sending. Uh, in their treatment, in their infringement proceedings against Malta and Cyprus. That's something that certainly the Prime Minister, Edi Rama, the Prime Minister of Albania, I'm sure he's paying attention to what's going on there. Um, and, and I'm sure that it makes him think twice about introducing a citizenship by investment program. So I think definitely 
the actions of the European Commission on Malta and Cyprus will to some extent act as a deterrent to other countries in the within the EU. I don't think it'll have any effect or not much effect uh, in the Pacific or in the Caribbean or elsewhere. And I think uh, over time also that the role of the European Commission will sort of it will become less important, especially now that uh, the UK is out of the EU. Let's see what happens with uh, the Southern European countries. Let, let's see if the EU is even here in 10 years. I'm not sure, to be to be honest, but but definitely it was a scare to a lot of people, who, a lot of countries who were thinking of opening a citizenship by investment program. Now, as to golden visa programs, I don't think that it's going to change a lot because uh you know certain elements uh, left leftist elements in uh, the european parliament are saying hey you're uh, starting infringement proceedings against cyprus and malta for having citizenship by investment programs but what about all these countries that have golden visa programs aren't you going to um, initiate infringe infringement proceedings against them as well and the answer is no, and, and the European Commission has confirmed that they don't have any plans of that. And I understand why they would say that, because in Europe, there's two or three citizenship by investment programs, uh, but there's you know, 23, 24 golden visa programs, and the majority of EU member states have golden visa programs. So they would have to initiate infringement proceedings against the majority of their own member states. And I just don't see that happening. And in your opinion, what lessons can the industry learn from the cancellation of the Cyprus program? I think the lesson is that just a small number of missteps from a minority of actors is enough to bring down an otherwise legitimate and lucrative program. I think uh, it's a disaster in some ways for Cyprus that, that they've lost that program now that they closed it down. I think they threw out the baby with the bathwater because the program was doing a lot of things, a lot of good things. It's true that it was, I, th I think it was uh, overly focused on the real estate sector. Uh, it was kind of imbalanced in that way. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a, you know, it was here today and gone tomorrow. It was that kind of thing. Uh, it can disappear overnight, a program like that. Don't take it for granted. And it's just, it's just a reminder to other programs that, uh, look, your, your, your biggest, your biggest, the biggest threat to your existence comes from inside the house, so to speak, uh, in the sense that if your if your own people, if your own government, if your own service providers, if your own program stakeholders are not sticking to the straight and narrow road, then uh, scandals happen, and scandals have a way of of uh, terminating these uh, programs. That's that's what I would say is the lesson uh, from Cyprus. Now moving on to some new trends. According to many industry specialists, Nigerian and American markets saw high demand for CBI in 2020. Which regions do you think will become the next markets interested in acquiring CBI and why? Vietnam is probably the most interesting emerging market for investor migration because I think it, it has so many parallels to what happened to the Chinese market uh, 
15 years ago. Um, you know, both are formerly communist, still nominally communist countries, but with uh, a great deal of market liberalization having taken place in, in both countries, leading to wealth creation. You know, in, in China, they had the Gai Kaifang, the, the reform and opening up back in uh, 1979. And then in, in Vietnam, they had the Doi Moi reforms in 1986. And so ec the economic development and the model of economic development in both those countries have been very similar. Of course, they're very different countries. And uh, Vietnam is, you know, uh, not even a tenth of the size of China. But at the same time, there are lots and lots of parallels in, in how they're developing and how that investment migration market is developing. And it's still pretty early days, I think, in uh, the Vietnamese market. The, the number of high net worth individuals in Vietnam is growing at an incredibly rapid clip and shows no signs of stopping. Uh, Vietnam is one of the few countries around the world that's basically been unaffected by COVID and, and they've been able to grow 3% their economy, uh, even in 2020. And let's not forget, you know, Southeast Asia is home to 650 million people. I think that's going to be an extremely interesting market because it's growing fast and the people that are interested in migration and, and in Vietnam, they're quite cosmopolitan, more so than in China. So I think that's going to be a very interesting market. But the most remarkable trend in 2020, in my opinion, isn't it's not about the Vietnamese, it's not about Nigerians, it's about the Americans, because that's incredibly exciting that Americans are now waking up to the existence of the investment migration industry. I mean, most, most Americans prior to 2020 had no idea what it was like to not have visa-free access to the places that they wanted to visit. And 2020 has kind of put that you know, it's given Americans a taste of what it's like to not have visa-free travel. Of course, in the United States, there's also been a variety of, you know, there's been civil unrest. There's been, there's, there's an increasing polarization of the, the political uh, landscape. Um, there is, uh, you know, not, now you're having a, an administration that's just come in that's probably going to take a very different line on, on taxes than the previous administration. And so we're seeing Americans giving up their citizenship in record numbers, especially the high net worth ones. And the reason I think that this is so exciting is because historically, in the investment migration market has catered to and targeted millionaires in the developing world. So people with, you know, wealth from not so wealthy countries or people with wealth from countries that have uh, whose passports have poor mobility scores. But let's not forget that three quarters of all the high net worth individuals globally live in what we think of as the West. So they live in principally North America and Western Europe. And, and that those three quarters of the potential market for citizenship by investment or residence by investment hasn't been targeted or, or addressed uh, much in the past because we've sort of presumed that, well, no, Europeans have excellent uh, mobility and settlement freedom and so do Americans. So there's no reason to, to target them. Uh, but now that they, also they are, are feeling the sting of immobility and that there is you know, talk in, in Europe now of introducing citizenship-based taxation 
I mean, if that if those three quarters of the market really do wake up, then that could effectively overnight double or triple or quadruple the size of the investor migration market. And so now that we've whetted the appetite of Americans, I think the next up next up is Western Europeans. And and if we can uh, really wake up both of those Western markets, then it can transform the investment migration industry uh, beyond recognition. Very exciting times indeed. And now moving on to China. Though China claims to be leading the world in pandemic recovery, CBI experts have said that its investment immigration market is still behind. Why do you think that is? Well, a couple of different reasons for that. Uh, number one is uh, the Chinese since February haven't been able to renew their passports. I don't know if you've heard about this, but uh, essentially since the pandemic struck uh, and they closed their borders, they also stopped renewing passports. I don't that may have picked up, uh, that may have opened up again now, I'm not sure, but essentially a lot of Chinese simply weren't able to renew their passports. So that's one thing. The other thing is that um, there is a trend that began at, at the very end of 2018, um, which was, you know, the, the Chinese government, they deregulated the investment migration industry in China. Prior to 2019, in order to be in the investment migration business in China, you needed a particular license for that, uh, an immigration firm license. So that limited the number of immigration service providers. And that's why we saw also uh, the rise of these behemoth, gigantic uh, Chinese investment migration firms with, you know, uh, some of them have upwards of a thousand employees and did thousands of cases a year. Um, the, after deregula- uh, the deregulation at the end of 2018, the market was opened up to you know every Tom, Dick, and Harry who wanted to set up their own investment migration firm. They just needed a regular old business license uh, rather than a special license for this. And so what we've seen is in the big companies, a lot of the key employees have left and set up their own shop. Uh, a lot of the firms that used to use the services of those huge companies have now, for example, wealth managers, family offices, law firms, they're now saying, well, now that the market is deregula- deregulated, we can do this ourselves. We can do this in-house. So uh, we're going to start doing this in-house. And so you had sort of a disintegration of the investment migration market in China, a disintegration of the big companies. Uh, there's definitely still a lot of demand. But there, I think there is a mismatch between demand and supply at the moment because uh, a lot of the big companies don't work the same way that they used to. There's also a lot of distrust now in China toward um, a lot of these companies because they haven't behaved uh, in an exemplary manner in the past. And I think there's also an opportunity there for, for uh, you know, European and, and uh, Middle Eastern and North American companies to, for the first time in a generation, actually directly target the Chinese B2C market. In the past, you know, very few uh, international firms would dare to go direct to market in China to target uh, the investors themselves. They always went for the B2B business through these big companies and, and avoided 
targeting clients directly because that would jeopardize their B2B agreements, which were very, very lucrative because they, you know, a single large company in China might send you a hundred clients a year. And so everybody was avoiding going uh, B2C, but now everything is kind of up in the air in, in China. And you can read this on imidaily.com in our series, The Crisis in uh, China's Investment Migration Market, written by our partner in China, Luke Lu. So now there's an opportunity for Western firms to actually target Chinese clients directly. And it's the first time in a generation that that opportunity has been opened up. And, um, and I, this is something I would encourage uh, Western firms to do now. And that wraps up all of our questions. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christian. We appreciate all your insights. This concludes our fourth episode of season three. If you have any topics or questions regarding the upcoming CBI trends and would like for us to discuss them on plan B, let us know and we'll be happy to have an expert address them. Now we'd like to ask you, our listeners, what developments have you seen in global migration? Do you think the industry will reach the pre-pandemic standard ever? Let us know in the comments. As promised, before we bid you goodbye, here are four most common ways to gain a second citizenship. The first is the right of blood or ancestry. This is a principle of nationality law by which citizenship is determined or acquired by a parent's nationality or ethnicity. Children at birth may be citizens of a particular state if either or both of their parents have citizenship of that state. It may also apply to national identities of ethnic, cultural or other origins. Citizenship can also apply to children whose parents belong to a diaspora and were not themselves citizens of the state conferring citizenship. There are over 150 countries that offer citizenship based on one's parents or grandparents, according to the CIA World Factbook. The second method is known as the right of soil, commonly referred to as birthright citizenship. Here, nationality or citizenship is the right of anyone born in the territory of a state. Almost all states in Europe, Asia, Africa and Oceania grant citizenship at birth based upon the principle of right of blood. The right of blood in many cases helps prevent statelessness. Next is naturalization. Naturalization is the legal act or process by which a non-citizen of a country may acquire citizenship or nationality of that country. It may be done automatically by a statute or it may involve an application or a motion and approval by legal authorities. The rules of naturalization vary from country to country but typically include a promise to obey and uphold the country's laws, taking in subscribing an oath of allegiance, and may specify other requirements such as a minimum legal residency and adequate knowledge of the national dominant language or culture. And finally, we have immigrant investor programs. These programs are designed to attract foreign capital by providing the right of residence and citizenship in return. These are also known as citizenship by investment, golden visa or golden passport programs. Immigrant investor programs usually have multiple criteria that must be fulfilled for the investment to qualify, often pertaining to job creation, purchasing of real estate, non-refundable contributions or specific targeted industries. Most of these programs are structured to ensure that the investment contributes to the welfare, advancement and economic development of the country in which they choose to reside or belong to. Next Wednesday, we'll be back with Jane Gordon from CS Global Partners, who will share with us insights of the South African citizenship by investment market. Remember, you can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and YouTube to never miss an episode and stay in tune with all things CBI. Until then, if you have any questions about CBI would like to find out more, please visit www.csglobalpartners.com 
I'm Aisha Mohammed, and thank you for listening. Stay safe.